Hello and a very warm welcome to all our listeners. My name is Tobias and I'm the Chief UK Writer. This is Britain Unveiled. I'm sure that we can agree the last few months of British politics have been turbulent to say the least, with the country seeing three different Prime Ministers since September. A YouGov poll in October showed that two-thirds of Brits thought the new Prime Minister Rishi Sunak should call for an early general election, so it's no secret that after 12 years of conservatism, the Labour Party is growing ever more popular. But is this shift a result of the handling of the pandemic, or Tory infighting, leaving Labour as the less bad option, or have the Labour Party upped their political game? That's what I'm going to try and find out today. Tony Blair was the Prime Minister from 1997 to 2007, and he's well known for his new Labour brand. Despite his tainted legacy of bringing the UK into war with Afghanistan, Blair brought in some socialist policies, such as the introduction of the minimum wage and increased public spending on health and education, whilst also being, quote, tough on crime and introducing university tuition fees. Many would argue that his electoral success stemmed from his ability to cater to both ends of the political spectrum. In other words, he was a unifier, and this centrist approach was continued by Gordon Brown and to some extent David Cameron, who won the election in 2010, bringing the Conservatives back to power under a coalition government with the Liberal Democrats. However, when Ed Miliband became Labour leader in 2010, he rebranded the party away from New Labour and took the party further to the left. His successor, the infamous Jeremy Corbyn, abandoned the New Labour movement completely and took a far more radical left stance, advocating for nuclear disarmament, renationalising the rails, less foreign military intervention and even a wage cap for top earners. Perhaps most controversially, Corbyn backed a second referendum on Brexit, an issue that remains contentious even now. All this meant it wasn't long before Corbyn was labelled as a Marxist for his views. For much of the far left, or lefty loonies as a conservative might nickname them, Corbyn was the messiah. But in reality, his socialist and anti-establishment agenda was simply too radical to ever be stomached by the British electorate. He went on to lose the 2017 election to Theresa May, and later the 2019 election in a landslide victory for Boris Johnson. Throughout the 2010s, under Miliband and Corbyn, Labour shifted much further left-wing, and at the same time, Labour saw a slow and steady drop in its popularity. Now, I'll let you decide if you think those two things are linked. However, Corbyn's problems didn't lie entirely in how divisive his policies were. I would argue that people couldn't even remember them in the first place. If you want, pause the podcast now, go onto phone or laptop, and search up the Labour 2019 Manifesto and the Conservative 2019 Manifesto. At first glance, the reader of Labour's manifesto sees 107 pages of small text. Consequentially, anyone who wasn't invested in politics at the time simply didn't have the patience, time or interest to read it in full. After a foreword from the Labour leader comes 14 pages about a green industrial revolution split into four parts. Now, most moderate right-wing voters dabbling with the left would likely already have been snoring. Labour's 2017 manifesto is longer still, at 126 pages. However, when you compare it to the Conservative Manifesto, the contrast is stark. Before you can even view it, you'll be met with a page titled Our Plan. Policies are big, bold, and each are accompanied by a hefty tick. Extra funding for the NHS with 50,000 more nurses and 50 million more GP surgery appointments a year. 20,000 more police and tougher sentencing for criminals. Get Brexit done. That's Boris Johnson, for anyone who doesn't know. The message was concise. 
In only seconds, the reader knew the Conservatives had a clear plan for the future, and more importantly, knew what that plan was. And this was all before they even got to the manifesto itself. In its 64 pages, there are eight photos of their leader at the time, Boris Johnson. On the final page, you'll find a picture of a group of workmen holding a big sign saying, We love Boris, solidifying his image in people's minds. Compare that to the Labour manifesto, and you'll see that Corbyn appears just once. I think it's fair to say that Boris Johnson's public image was an undeniable factor in the Tories' 2019 success. His caricature of this bumbling buffoon, as some have put it, was appealing because it made him funny, likeable and relatable to many people in a way that no other politician had ever come close to. He rejected the serious outlook of his counterparts and treated himself as a sort of clown. Many will remember public stunts, such as driving a bulldozer through a wall that said, get Brexit done, and getting stuck on a zip line whilst waving Union Jacks in the air. And they weren't just memorable, they were iconic. We have a parliament that is paralysed, blocked, generally incapable of digestive function as, a, as an anaconda that has swallowed a tapir. <laughs> Neither moving one way or the other, if you see what I mean. Uh, this parliament just refuses to get Brexit done. And this deal deli- delivers everything that I campaigned for, uh, for, for Brexit. We take back control of our money so we can spend millions more uh, every week. On the other hand, you had Jeremy Corbyn, who I suppose was just kind of a boring old man. The only stunt that I can ever remember him doing was sitting down on the floor of a train to demonstrate a lack of space on the railways. And actually, it turned out there were plenty of seats, but he just chose not to use them. So the whole thing was kind of just a bit of a fad anyway. Actually, I tell a lie. The other gaffe I remember him doing was accidentally high-fiving the shadow secretary of state in the breast, um, trying to aim for her hand and, and miss completely. So that, that was another one um, that is important to mention. So... From the strong imagery to the short, compelling slogans, I would say the Conservatives were simply better at getting their message across. Johnson couldn't revel in his election win for long, however, as he needed to start work on his main election promise of getting Britain out of the Brexit deadlock. But it was only a matter of months after Boris Johnson became Prime Minister that the world changed completely. And suddenly, he had to abandon the Jester Act to become very serious indeed. The Prime Minister has announced the most drastic limits to our lives that the UK has ever seen in living memory. The aim, he says, is to save lives in this time of national emergency. Without a huge national effort, Mr Johnson has made it clear there will come a moment when the NHS will not be able to cope and more people will die. From tonight, you can only leave your home for very specific reasons. I could probably fill three podcasts talking about the British government's handling, or rather mishandling, of COVID, so I won't go too far into it today. The pandemic certainly was a great test of Boris Johnson's leadership, and it's fair to say that having lived through it, great mistakes were made which had far-reaching consequences. The most notable was probably Partygate. If you don't know, this was the scandal where Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the members of the government gathered for numerous parties and get-togethers during the lockdown that they had imposed. When it first came out, he denied it outright. He then admitted that there were gatherings, but said no rules were broken. In May, the Sue Gray report was finished, the long-awaited investigation into Partygate, and it left absolutely no doubt. There were a total of 16 parties over the pandemic, and the rules hadn't just been broken, they were eviscerated. Boris couldn't even stick to his own rules, and there was nothing he could do to save his integrity. 
People's mothers, fathers and children had been dying alone in solidarity with the rules and simultaneously the elite were in number 10 Downing Street having booze ups. In other words, the nation now saw that it was one rule for them and another for those at the top. Partygate was nothing short of cataclysmic for the Tories. It was the moment that Boris sealed the fate of his career as Prime Minister and even though it took several more months for the coffin to be nailed, Squeezed in tight next to him was the Conservative Party's hopes of winning another general election. And Keir Starmer certainly didn't waste a chance. What a joke. Even now, as the latest mealy-mouthed apology stumbles out of one side of his mouth, a new set of deflections and distortions pour from the other. But the damage is already done. The public have made up their mind. They don't believe a word the Prime Minister says. They know what he is. For all those unfamiliar with this Prime Minister's career, this isn't some fixable glitch in the system. It's the whole point. It's what he does. It's who he is. He knows he's dishonest and incapable of changing. So he drags everybody else down with him. The more people deface themselves... Since then, things haven't exactly been going great for the Tories. For those of you who don't know, here's a quick round-up. In June... After a number of Conservative MPs wrote to the chair of the 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady, a vote of no confidence was called. If Boris had lost the vote, there would have been either an immediate Conservative leadership contest or a snap general election. But against all predictions, Johnson won, with 59% of Tory MPs backing him. However, as most things in British politics, its unwritten conventions are not as straightforward as they may seem. Because beating a vote of no confidence is a bit like beheading a hydra. It's only a matter of time before it's replaced by even more. Boris Johnson's fate was sealed when on July 7th, 2022, 57 of his cabinet ministers resigned from the government en masse, an unprecedented event. This actually meant that he lacked a majority government and had no option but to resign. He was succeeded by Liz Truss. She will be remembered for introducing the mini-budget, which was about as popular as a slapstick comedian at a baby's funeral. The budget aimed to remove the highest tax bracket for top earners and reverse tax increases on businesses. But in the midst of a cost-of-living crisis, most people weren't thrilled by the idea of the richest 1% receiving a tax break and the economic hysteria that this caused quickly led to the pound crashing to its lowest ever level against the dollar. Clearly not the most well-received policy ever made. But did it have any potential? In January, I interviewed University of Bath economics professor Chris Martin, and he thinks that the policy was focusing on the wrong thing. Hi, uh, my name's Chris Martin. I'm professor of economics at the University of Bath. I particularly specialise in macroeconomics and labour markets, and I got into all of this because I really wanted to understand what it was that were driving a lot of the economic problems, trying to understand how the UK was doing relative to comparable countries, and just trying to figure out what is it we can do to make the lives of people better. 
Um, that kind of links into what I wanted to talk about next, uh, which is this trust's mini budget. Um, so obviously a big justification for that was this sort of trickle down economics theory. So in an ideal world, do you think tax breaks for businesses and uh, highest earners could have improved the situation? Do you think it could have worked? Um, and if you were Liz Truss's advisor, what might you have done differently? Let me first of all say that I think, and most economists would agree, that Truss's diagnosis was spot on. At least since 2008, the UK has suffered from chronic low productivity growth, and action to counter that is absolutely essential. So saying the UK is is stuck in a period of managed decline, I think she's absolutely right. The policies she proposed for that, I think, were very, very weird. Every economist immediately thought, hang on a moment, because the idea that you can solve economic problems by giving certain people more money is a little bit like waving a magic wand. Getting economic growth is not simple. You can't simply say, if I give a lot of money to this person, economic growth will result from that. If Let's, let's think, for example, energy investment. Simply investing in energy by itself is not sufficient. What you need is a functioning, up-to-date, high-capacity infrastructure. In the same way, giving uh, lower tax rates to entrepreneurs by itself will not generate investment. It may help at the margins to generate investment. But what really drives investment is two things. One, infrastructure. And number two, education and skills. You need to invest in individuals, you need to invest in capital, not just at the corporate level, but possibly even more so at the national level to build up the infrastructure. So if I was Truss's advisor, I'd say that, yes, if you think that uh, low tax rates for for high high earners and entrepreneurs is a good idea, then I don't agree, but I can see why, where the argument comes from. But there is no hope of that having any success at all unless it is part of a wider package that will deliver the highly skilled workers that are currently lacking and that will deliver the infrastructure that's currently lacking. That's great. Um, so what, what do you think you would have done differently then? So number one, I would increase education. But the UK's problem is not so much at the high end. The real problem is that the intermediate level and the lower level levels of skills in the British workforce are too poor. So we don't need more elite education. We need more educational investment focused in people who are not at the top, at the middle level and the lower level. That's the first thing. Second thing, infrastructural investment is, I keep saying it, is absolutely essential. After a monstrous amount of backlash and just 44 days in office, Liz Truss resigned, making her the shortest lasting Prime Minister in British history. Now, for perspective, the second shortest lasting Prime Minister was George Canning, and he ended his role after 119 days because he died. So it was now up to the Conservative members of Parliament to vote for yet another person to run the country. You might be asking, after the most unsuccessful Prime Minister of all time resigned because of the backlash to her tax cuts to the rich, who did they vote to replace her? Perhaps someone with a humbler background to try and relate to people? No, they chose Rishi Sunak, who is a near billionaire, with greater wealth than our late monarch. And the message that it sent was not taken well by the British public. Fast forward, and now, like a thief sat next to a mass murderer, Labour seems pretty virtuous in comparison. Like I mentioned at the start, Labour's now the less bad option for many of Britain's swing voters, which is reflected by the current polls. 
And this isn't just any golden opportunity for Keir Starmer, it's 24 carats. So, what has changed from Corbyn to Starmer? As it turns out, quite a bit. The most blindingly obvious difference is that Keir has distanced himself from the openly socialist movements of his predecessor. Yes, Labour is still the left-wing party, with many of the same sentiments remaining in place, renationalising the rails, accountable corporation tax and investment into a green technological future. But I believe that Keir, not to mention Labour's deputy leader, Angela Rayner, is doing a far better job at identifying with the British public, particularly the working class. The 2022 Labour conference was a great success for the party, with talks of a new Britain and a fresh start. Happening just after Liz Truss crashed the pound, it was their moment to make themselves known, and it certainly delivered. During the conference, Starmer made a significant announcement of his plans for Great British Energy, a publicly owned British energy company. The largest onshore wind farm in Wales. Who owns it? Sweden. Energy bills in Swansea are paying for schools and hospitals in Stockholm. The Chinese Communist Party has a stake in our nuclear industry. And five million people in Britain pay their bills to an energy company owned by France. So we will set up great British energy within the first year of a Labour government. A new company. A new company. A new company that takes advantage of the opportunities in clean British power. And because it is right for jobs, because it is right for growth, because it is right for energy independence from tyrants like Putin, then yes, conference, great British energy will be publicly owned. This is a prime example of the big party politics Labour is implementing under Starmer to win over swing voters. What's crucial here is that the speech isn't all doom and gloom, it's patriotic. Despite him being a Remainer, he talks of a powerfully self-owned Britain not reliant on Europe, which was funnily enough one of the main reasons that people voted for Brexit. He has in effect taken over the Tories' reins as a pro-Britain, self-owned economy. Boris Johnson's Brexit slogan, Bring Back Control, comes to mind. You see, Starmer's pandering with soft nationalism, with the use of Union Jacks all over the conference stage and his pro-Britain policies and language, which is something you just didn't see with Jeremy Corbyn. And if they're going to win the next election, I believe that's exactly what they need. A few weeks after the Labour conference, he delivered this speech in Parliament right as the pressure was mounting for Liz Truss to resign. The only mandate she's ever had is from members opposite. Yeah. It was a mandate built on fantasy economics yeah. and it ended in disaster. Yeah. The country's got nothing to show for it except the destruction of the economy and the implosion of the Tory party. Yeah. I've got the list here. 45p tax cut, gone. Corporation tax cut, gone. 20p tax cut, gone. Two-year energy freeze, gone. Tax-free shopping, gone. Economic credibility, gone. And her supposed best friend, the former Chancellor, he's gone as well. They're all gone. So why is she still here? I am a fighter and not a quitter. I am a fighter and not a quitter.
I am a fighter, not a quitter. You can hear Truss saying at the end there. It's probably worth mentioning that she actually resigned the next day. Whilst the proposition of great British energy and zero carbon emissions by 2030 is bold and catchy, it's bound to put a huge dent in public spending. So is it actually economically conceivable in the current climate? Here's what University of Bath economics professor Chris Martin had to say. Given that Labour plans to reach zero carbon electricity by 2030, how feasible is the scale of Great British Energy in our current state? And is such huge public spending actually economically conceivable? Let me answer the last part of that first. I think large scale public expenditure is feasible. And indeed, given the current state of the UK infrastructure, I think it's very much desirable. Um, going for zero carbon is very ambitious and almost certainly will fail. But there are certain things that really need to be done before that can be uh, a realistic ambition. For example, the power distribution system in the UK is antiquated and is very much reaching capacity. So a large scale uh, public investment, for example, to increase power distribution, to update and modernise it would be valuable in all, for all sorts of reasons, both economically and also kind of to drive the zero carbon agenda. And do you think then that um, investing now in, in these you know, solar energy wind farms is the best course of action? Well, if you look at UK energy uh, generation at the moment, a fairly small fraction of that is actually generated through fossil fuels. A large proportion is generated through renewables, particularly wind, a fair amount from um, nuclear, a certain amount from solar. Yes, of course, the whole thing about investment is that the sooner you do it, the better and the more sustainably you do it, the better. So so absolutely, yes. But it's not simply a case of simply building a whole series of wind farms. There's a whole infrastructure around connecting those wind farms to the grid. And that sort of thing is the sort of thing that we need governments to be addressing and as soon as possible. In December, Keir Starmer revealed that he would abolish the House of Lords in the first term of a Labour government. Britain's laws are decided in the Houses of Parliament, which are made up of two chambers, the lower House of Commons, where members of Parliament sit, and the upper House of Lords, where the Lords sit. The House of Commons represents the public, discusses and proposes new laws, and holds the government to account. It's made up of democratically elected members of Parliament. The House of Lords takes the proposed laws from Parliament and acts as a checks and balances system to decide whether or not to allow laws to go through. I think that most would agree it's important to have different bodies agreeing on changes to make sure that nothing is overlooked. Many countries have a similar system, for instance the United States, with the President, Supreme Court and Congress all working in tandem. Labour's main criticism is that Lords aren't democratically elected. In fact, there are still 91 hereditary peers who have their influence over the UK legislature as a birthright. But its problems don't end at nepotism. In 2017, the former Speaker of the House of Lords, Lady D'Souza, questioned the true motives of some peers, telling the BBC, there is a core of peers who work incredibly hard who do that work, and there is sad to say many, many, many peers who contribute absolutely nothing but who claim the full allowance, adding at the end that she once spotted a peer going straight in and straight out while their taxi was still running, presumably just so that they could claim their £300 allowance for that day. The House of Lords criticisms go on, including that serving Prime Ministers can simply fill the House with like-minded peers to increase their chances of votes going through, as was done by numerous Prime Ministers, notably Theresa May. In short, 
Labour wants to scrap the second chamber, replacing it with a fully elected body with the aim of devolution of power. Whilst I believe this could be a positive change, there are some very valid arguments against this proposition. By making the House of Lords completely democratic, you could decrease the level of expertise within by removing very valuable peers like barristers or retired generals like General Danat, the ex-head of the army, and I think experts such as these deserve a real place in governing the country and so it might not be as perfect a plan as some believe. It's important to mention that this isn't actually the first time a motion to abolish the House of Lords has been tried. It's undergone numerous reforms over the years, notably in 1999 when Prime Minister Tony Blair attempted to remove entirely hereditary peers but ended up taking the number down from over 600 to 92. Still a big change, but of course not what he aimed for. So, whilst Labour are doing more now to make their public image and their policies more appealing to a wider voter base, things aren't exactly sunshine and rainbows for Keir Starmer. He took a big hit during the Partygate scandal last year, when it was exposed that he too was alleged to have attended similar rule-breaking parties, though it was later found out that actually no rules were broken. He has gone back on numerous promises that were made in his campaign to be elected as Labour leader, for instance, making bus travel free for under 25s. At the moment, there seems to be a growing amount of disdain for Starmer's refusal to take sides on ongoing strikes, starting with rail workers, then nurses, ambulance staff, postal workers, and now teachers too. Thousands upon thousands of people up and down the country have been protesting to the government over the last few months because of their low pay and poor conditions. Starmer is careful not to show his support for the strikes and the political decision here I think is kind of obvious. For much of this podcast I've talked about how Starmer is trying to distance himself from the far left Corbynites and follow more in the neutral footsteps of Tony Blair. Essentially he's playing both sides. He agrees that public sector pay and conditions need improvement and puts this to the Tories. However, by refusing to show full support for the strikers he avoids the risk of losing centre-right support. It seems that his game plan is to wait for the attention to die down without losing support from either side. There's a strong argument that in the current political sphere, Starmer has the room to show support for the strikes and bolster the collective movement against the Tories. Instead, by trying to mimic Blair's stance, it seems that he's now losing support from the working class for what can only be described as a lack of a backbone. Only time will tell if this is the right move for him. But if he doesn't do something soon, then perhaps the large Labour majority we see in polls today could start to shrink in the lead up to the 2024 election. Keep your eyes on Angela Rayner. Despite Keir Starmer's desperate attempts to relate to people by often reminding us that he's an avid Arsenal fan, the Labour deputy leader, Mrs Rayner, has a much stronger reputation with Britain's working class, which is helped by her northern upbringing, so we might see her take over from Keir as the next Prime Minister. Who knows? Perhaps we might not end up with a Labour government at all. They could be forced to form a coalition government. We could even see the Tories in power for another electoral term. Right now, the latter does seem very unlikely, but I have to say, two years is a long time in politics. Britain's future is uncertain. House prices are rising, inflation and interest rates are soaring, and millions across Britain are feeling the pinch. All we know for sure is that there will be a general election by January 2025, and right now, it seems more than likely that Labour will win it. For better or for worse, Keir Starmer will probably be the next Prime Minister. Whoever does take on the role will have an enormous undertaking ahead of them. After 12 years and five Tory Prime Ministers, Labour should be sprinting towards an open goal. 
The only question remaining is will they score? I'm Tobias and this was Poos, Blunders and Buffoons. Thank you for listening. <laughs>